we're going to look at the holiness movement tonight. Sounds like a good movement, doesn't it? Holiness. That's what we're all after. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God in heaven, thank you for hearing us here on earth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the history of the church as we've been studying it over these many weeks. I pray that uh, uh, you would cause us to see the truth of your word as it is written uh, and having seen all the errors that creep in through the years from bad interpretation and just horrible leadership. May we be all the more determined to follow you and to worship you in spirit and truth. Guide our time tonight and uh, may it be an exciting time of learning, uh, drawing us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So here's where it goes off the rails. The holiness movement goes off the rails in the first slide. <laughs> sanctification. You know what the word sanctification means? You see it? The Bible, it means holiness. Uh, it means set apart, to be a saint. That's what the word means. It's translated different ways in different, different um, contexts. But uh, Hebrews 12, 14, the writer says, Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue the holiness, the sanctification. If you're not pursuing sanctification, no one's going to see the Lord. Well, that's what we want to do. We want to see the Lord, don't we? So pursue it. Pursue that kind of holiness. We become holy. We become set apart, that is, upon being justified. So what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. It means when you come to believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, and you trust in him, you are justified like that justified. You are declared righteous. You believe in the Lord Jesus with saving faith. You are justified in that moment. And in the moment that you're justified, you are at the same time set apart, sanctified. Are you fully sanctified? No. We're born again. We're like infants. We're, an infant is fully human, but an infant is growing. So we're fully justified, but we're just beginning our journey of sanctification. You, can you be justified and not sanctified? Okay, it's not a trick question, but if you grew up in the Methodist church, you, were, you would have been taught, if you were taught anything at all, uh, the answer would be, of course, you can be justified and not sanctified. And that's where it goes off the track, and everything goes kaput from there. So, so from the biblical standpoint, you are justified and immediately sanctified, and then you begin to grow in your sanctification. Some call that progressive sanctification. It's a continual process. It's not one at which we one day will arrive until we die. When we die, we will be fully sanctified, but not until that day. We will be like Jesus when we die. First John 3, 2 says, For we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is when we die. What sanctification looks like, Paul speaks of it in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, talking to Christians, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So this is Paul without ever saying the word. He's pushing us, grow, walk in the Spirit. Every day of your life, walk with Christ, grow in Christ. You are with the Spirit of God in doing so, and you will grow in the Spirit. That happens because you're justified. We will grow in our faith only because we're justified. Okay? This is a picture of John Wesley, John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism. He didn't one day say, I'm going to start a new denomination called Methodism. He was an Anglican. And Methodism becomes this methodology by which you become holy. And he was a good man. Prayed early in the morning, fasted, didn't do this, did that, didn't do this or that. 
became holy, a holiness routine. Nothing wrong with that at all. He and George Whitfield and his brother uh, Charles Wesley were big into this holy club, they called. He claimed that the first step in salvation was justification, being declared righteous by God. We're all in agreement, right? But he said that the Meth- he and the Methodists sought a second blessing that they called sanctification, whereby a justified believer attains a pure and holy state without sin. Now, John Wesley was constantly throughout his life looking to become sinless, thought that he would. It's through a misinterpretation that he understood that. I'm justified, I'm saved, done, and now I'm going to, I've got to seek a second blessing whereby I'm sanctified and I'll no longer sin. But he knew he was a sinner, so every time he knows he's sinning or thinking wrongly, he knows he's falling short of the glory of God. So if a justified person in, in Wesley's view, in the Methodist view, if they fail to go on to sanctification, they believe they can lose their justification. So there's a lot of fear. You will find, I think, that some of the greatest people, the, the nicest, most moral people are Arminians. We call these people Arminians. They have a theology that says, I'm saved. I need to seek to, be, to grow. And so they're always trying to do good things. They're like Mormons. And by trying to do good things, we like that. We benefit from that. But they're after something that they don't need to be doing. They're living in fear is what they're doing. So I want to show you the hierarchical structure of Methodism. Methodist class meetings were organized in a disciplined hierarchy. Uh, there'll be classes, uh, certain classes would be those seeking justification. That would be those who are seeking to be saved, be a class. And then you've got classes. These are folks seeking, each class was presided over by a person. That's what these people over these uh, in the illustration Uh, These people presided over them. They had achieved justification, uh, but they were seeking sanctification. These justified people had their own peer-to-peer fellowship groups called bands. So these bands, these are folks that have been justified, and now they're seeking sanctification in your Methodist denomination. Each band was presided over by one who had achieved sanctification. So you've got those seeking justification. They're going to be Um, pushed by those seeking sanctification, and those seeking sanctification are going to be overseen by those who have been, at least in their own minds, sanctified. Um, These sanctified folks met in their own groups called select bands. So you can see this is a a hierarchy of people, lower to higher. We're up here, we're teaching you down here, and they're teaching those down there. This is Methodism, and it's hierarchical structure. Over each band was a circuit rider. It's pretty cool, I know. (laughs) Let's do it again. Over each band was a circuit rider, a man who traveled continually, discipling the members of several select bands. Do you know of any popular, famous circuit riders in Methodism? One of the ones that traveled the most in the United States was, if you have a Methodist background, you know his name, Francis Asbury. We'll meet him in a second. Methodism classes seeking sanctification. At every meeting, folks would be asked the following questions. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? There's nothing wrong with that. What known sins? I'm not sure we all want to know that. What temptations have you met with? How were you delivered? What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? Because we'll tell you whether it is. Do you have nothing you desire to keep secret? These are the questions in these classes of being presided over that would go on in the search for holiness. This is a picture. Looks like George Washington does it. This is Francis Asbury. After the Revolution, the Methodist Parachurch Organization, it was just an organization, a parachurch group, the Methodism, after the American Revolution. But it became a church, a denomination, with Francis Asbury as its first bishop. Uh, 
By the end of Asbury's ministry, the Methodist Church in America had 200,000-plus members. So it started off just as a little pair of church group um, and of growing people, and it's good. It's people trying to grow in their faith. Even though they're misguided and a misunderstanding of justification, it's still people that are trying to be what God would have them be. In the Second Great Awakening, the 18, early 1800s up to 1830, Methodists grew from the smallest to the largest denomination in America. Um, their growth, however, led to laxity, as can typically happen. With the growth came change. Asbury complained that Methodism was leaving its roots, a holiness movement. Methodists were not seeking sanctification, as they should. Uh, large churches attracted settled preachers rather than the circuit riders. And today, you'll see in most Methodist churches, um, a, a pastor will come in for every two to three years and then move out for the next one. Um, it's kind of they're moving up the ladder and, and taking their responsibility. If they do well at one church, they go to another one. And usually doing well, as you know, is just building numbers, which is what led to their laxity in the past. Church members got accustomed to just coming to church on Sunday with little personal commitment. Well, all churches do. And it did there. Their laxity, they stressed the second blessing, which they called holiness or sanctification. Yet over time, their commitment to holiness dwindled. They required ministers to attend seminary where they learned liberalism. Nothing wrong with requiring your, your, your pastors to go to seminary. But even today, if a young man in our church wants to go to seminary, um, we have to watch where they go. Uh, there are very few. I can count on one hand, no exaggeration, one hand, how many conservative seminaries there are. Uh, there are more that are popping up that, that are unknown and that are conservative, and that's great. We don't know them all. Uh, but the big ones, there just aren't any left, barely any. And so they go off to learn, and they just learn liberalism. Well, if a pastor learns liberalism and comes back to the church and promotes that, and it's being done all over their denomination, problems occur. Many churches grew large with expensive buildings, choirs, and organs. Anyone come from a church like that? That's right. I think we all did at some point. Many stopped emphasizing the pursuit of simple holiness in favor of numbers because if you emphasize holiness, how big is your church going to be? Yeah. And apparently small churches are not good. Someone told me once that a small church is no good. I'm being facetious because uh, no one actually told me that, but that's what people will say. Oh, you go to church where? How big is your church? That's what people with shallow minds ask. How big? What does it matter? Why not ask, does your preacher believe that Jesus is the Christ? Does he preach the word? I don't care if there's 10 people there, right? Don't you? Now, how big is it? Is it the happening place? Many Methodists began stressing that they should reemphasize holiness in the pursuit of this second blessing. Uh, you'll see these created a holiness movement out of what was once a holiness movement. And I've just listed up there the Anglican Church, which spits out the Episcopal Church in England, the Methodists in, in the United States, and and out of the Methodist comes this holiness movement. So it's going to get small again out of what was once holy and try to uh, purify the church. We've seen that all throughout church history. Everything gets big and a small group comes out to try to purify it. They're called Puritans in one level. Baptists come out of this and Baptists come out of that. You've got other groups coming out. Uh, we're a Bible church movement. I mean, we're doing the same thing. Moving. I mean, I came out of the Baptist church myself. So uh, I got tired of um, just the fluff. Um, someone in our, our church, I won't say who it was, but she went to a Baptist church this past weekend. And in all due respect to Baptist church, I'm not here to put them all down. I'm not. I grew up that way. But she said that her, her children noticed 
that in the time it takes me to preach, they had sung 30 plus minutes of songs. All of this, done this, 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 and this, all in the time it takes me to preach a sermon. Well, that is by design because I grew up in a church that way. You get up, you have this, you got to preach your hemming and hawing, you got to pass the plate, you got to have a solo. After the solo, the girl that got t- told no she couldn't do a solo gets to do a solo later, so she doesn't get mad at the first soloist. So you got two solos, got to sing more songs because the music director's prepared 45 minutes of music. And then after that, what have you got 15 minutes left for a sermon? The pastor gets up and acts like he's upset, but he didn't prepare all week, so it's just a repeat sermon he preached 10 years ago, and so why not? I'll be done in 15 minutes. So, holiness, let's come out of that and do something worthwhile. Enter Phoebe Palmer, 1807-1874. She emphasized holiness is attained by faith. Amen. Sister. She eventually taught both men and women in her Tuesday night class. She started off with a Tuesday night class with just women, but men started coming, and so she was... I would say compromised to teach those men. I felt like she could. She and her husband became conference and revival speakers in the United States and England. She became really famous really fast. She had a regimen for her own holiness that she preached to her classes. Bible reading, morning, noon, and evening. Keep a journal. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's fantastic. That'd be great if we did. We got it morning read, noon, evening, kept a journal. Nothing wrong with that. Her prayer, she prayed continually. She fasted regularly, and in the evening she contemplated uh, her day, her sins, confessed her sins. Amen. I love every part about that. Nothing wrong with that. Problem with it is it becomes too so regimented, and we push it on people, it becomes legalistic, doesn't it? Quite quickly. Keeping the Sabbath, attend church on Sundays, perform errands of mercy for others, refrain from business and recreation on the Sabbath, okay. Now we're getting a little bit legalistic here, but, uh, you know, if you're convicted to do so, why not? Fellowship meetings with other Christians, you can meet for testimony, prayer, and confession. Okay? Nothing wrong, nothing heretical, but she's leading this movement. She is leading it. People are following. Great. I think it's wonderful. Clothing. She began to have certain views on clothing. Those who wear stylish clothes show themselves to be proud and waste money. Let me see. Now, some of you, some of you, don't worry, you're not even in the running. <laughs> and you planned it that way. You looked in the mirror before you came in, you went, eh, it's Wednesday night. <laughs> she urged women to sell their jewelry and give the money to mission work. Not such a bad idea. Costly churches, she said, bring in their train of costly worship, operatic singing, and generally the absence of a godly people and of the precious influence of the Holy Spirit. I agree with that. Rich people are dangerous because they drive out the Holy Spirit who can only be cherished by the ostentatious, careful, humble, childlike dependence on God. Problem is, who do we define as rich? Um, in her way, it's going to, you have to look poor. I mean, you would get ready for church in that morning and your wife might say, honey, you can't wear that. She, Phoebe's going to get you. You can't, don't, don't fasten your tie. Make you, let's get a little tea stain on your tie. Make it look dingy. Um, because there's definitely clothes police at this woman's church, no doubt. She opposed Henry Ward Beecher, who was a preacher, a very prominent and famous preacher of that day. She opposed him when he installed bowling alleys and billiard tables in the new YMCA. Back then, the YMCA wasn't your workout venture that we have today. It was a, uh, a parachurch organization to preach and to help the poor. She opposed the, the novel, one of my favorites of all time, Uncle Tom's Cabin, 
because it caused hundreds of religious families where novels had hitherto been prohibited to develop a taste for fiction. Oh, goodness, these people might like fiction because it's such a good book. When Uncle Tom's Cabin was made into a play, she lamented that hundreds of pious families were thus introduced to the theater. People might go out to the theater and watch a play, heaven forbid, to walk out. How many of you grew up in such a, a, an atmosphere in the old days to just walk out of a movie theater made you wicked? Okay. This is all happening around the time of the revival of 1858, the Layman's Prayer Revival, which we looked at a couple weeks back. Back in 1858, as you recall, there was a brief interdenominational revival in, in America that spread to England called the Layman's Prayer Revival. Phoebe and her husband, Walter, were key revivalists during this time. There were camp meetings. There were more like modern retreats at conference centers, and they were quite common in the day. It's where people gathered what they did for entertainment. I mean, you couldn't do anything else with Phoebe walking around. Revivalists at these camp meetings stressed a closer walk with Christ through the Spirit. Amen. We should stress that. In the revival of 1858, John Swanell Inskip started an interdenominational organization to promote these camp meetings called the National Camp Meeting, Asso Meeting of the Promotion of Holiness, right alongside Phoebe Palmer. In England, these camp meetings drew into the later annual, now that looks like Keswick, but it's pronounced Keswick, into the annual Keswick conventions for seeking a higher life with Christ. Keswick is actually a, a town in, in England. So they gathered there, and this became an annual meeting. Uh, and there, it's a movement, became a movement of holiness movement, even in the United States. It's not a terrible thing. It's just a little strange. Uh, I should say some of the folks that, that follow it are a little strange. There are some that are, that are quite wonderful uh, and good and godly men. If you're familiar with a man named Robertson McQuilkin, who was part of the Keswick organization. Yeah, and uh, Columbia Bible College, yeah. Around this time, the Salvation Army comes along, William Booth. He was influenced by the holiness movement in England and created the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army was a holiness movement aimed at bringing the gospel to the poor and the unchurched in England and America. So we're trying to bring holiness, the, the message of the gospel, to the poor and the unchurched. Outside the church, these are these parachurch organizations. From this, new denominations sprung. Phoebe Palmer and John Inskip and other holiness leaders did not want to form a new denomination. They were within Methodism. They were seeking to urge Christians of all denominations to seek the second blessing. Okay, you've been justified, now seek to be sanctified. But they were wrong because the moment you're justified, you are sanctified, and you begin to grow. So to tell people to seek it would have confused some of all denominations. Wait a minute, I thought that we were sanctified the moment we're justified. However, as many holiness advocates met resistance in their denominations, they, quote-unquote, came out of the denominations to form a new holiness denomination in and of itself. Uh, and it would take here at the Midwest. Uh, I guess you would call that around the Midwest. The holiness movement churches were particularly strong in the Midwest. Their major denominations that sprung from the holiness movement would be the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. About 23 denominations came out of this holiness movement. All of them are Arminian. Not a one of them are Calvinistic. None of them are strictly biblical. They're, they're most strictly Doing good, doing good things, right things. Yeah, Steve. The second blessing thing. Um, why wasn't it considered heretical? Because you can get it No. Yeah, I mean they they will they will look at scripture to say be sanctified, you know, and and pursue sanctification. That one that I showed earlier. 
uh, from Hebrews 12, 14. They would show passages like that where it says here it says to pursue sanctification. But if you take that out of its context, apart from justification, it's saying, okay, you're justified. Now you need to pursue sanctification when, in fact, those of us who are justified are the only ones that are going to ever pursue sanctification and grow in our faith. Um, and so they just separated the two. Um, are there people calling it heresy? Of course there are. Um, they're all over the place. Um, that's why they have to move out of these denominations and become their own. Yeah, Mark? What's that? That's typically what it devolves into, even today. They saw it as a goal that could be achieved, and that being perfection. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And those people that achieved it actually believed they attained perfection? I mean, could they lose that sanctification? No, no. They're they're the people you'll run into today who will say things like a guy that my son encountered in the Texas A&M campus telling everybody, I haven't sinned in 13 years, and I don't plan to sin. That's... They would become like the Pharisees, yes. Yes. Yes, making up their own rules outside of Scripture. Uh, and that's usually what these things turn into. Because if, if you have to go outside of Scripture because it's not a scriptural movement. You're making up your own rules. And so from this, we get the Pentecostal movement. Um, stems from the holiness movement. So when we introduce Pentecostalism, the common terms that come with Pentecostalism, by the way, the word Pentecostalism comes from the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts 2 where um, God's Holy Spirit overcame the disciples and enabled them to speak in languages they'd never learned, tongues. This, the common terms you'll, you'll hear, hear out of Pentecostal churches are the second blessing, spirit baptism, tongues, uh, prayer languages, healing or faith healing, and being slain in the Spirit. That's the one where you, you fall down after Benny Hinn hits you with his jacket and you, you flop on the ground like a fish out of water. Slain in the Spirit. Not in the Bible, but it's there. This followed the liberalism of the 19th century. It's uniquely American because it wasn't happening outside of America. Uh, and if we define it, it's one who regards the events of Acts chapter 2, the tongues, as normative, required of the Christian experience. Required of the Christian experience. So when you see people speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, that means the Holy Spirit came upon them. That must mean that if we're not speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon us. Now, for those of you who are here for the Acts study, in the year I took to study go through Acts, What's the one thing you took from that that I kept telling you? Acts is a descriptive book, not... It describes what happens. It's not prescribing what's happening, what should happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tried to. Uh, the problem is it can't move into third world countries because it doesn't work <laughs> there. Yeah, I'll get to some of that as we go here. Uh, it comes from Methodism. Um, that's where out of the holiness movement and then out of the holiness movement itself, Methodism, holiness movement, Pentecostalism. It became its own denomination. Then it became an intra-denomination. Its origins from John Wesley, but Phoebe Palmer took it to the next level, and it promotes a second blessing. So your stages of salvation will be salvation, then the cleansing of one's old nature resulting in holiness and the eventual perfection which they called entire sanctification, which is what John Wesley sought. And when he didn't have it at the end of his life, he doubted whether he was even saved. So after the, the revolution, Methodism was small groups of people seeking holiness. 
1867, there was a holiness movement within Methodism to preserve it. And a group of ministers met together in order to recapture the way that it used to be. Let's bring it back. Got too big. After the Civil War, Methodism became the largest, most powerful denomination in our nation. So by 1893, 23 denominations were preaching holiness doctrine taught by Phoebe Palmer. You've got the, some of the main ones were the Church of the Nazarene in Pilot Point, Texas, Church of God in Anderson, Indiana, and the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which has made its way all over. It was simply a longing for holiness. Speaking in tongues had, tongues had not come to the forefront yet, but it was evolving. Many taboos were associated with it, the way you dressed, what you possessed, where you went and where you didn't go. In 1894, it separated from the Methodist Church altogether. And on January the 1st of 1901, the holiness movement becomes the Pentecostal movement in Topeka, Kansas. Anybody know the founder of it in Topeka, Kansas? You might know him because he came to Houston afterwards. His name was Charles Parham, 1893 to 1929. He was a holiness minister from Kansas who sought to have a healing ministry in his church. He wrestled with the question of how a person can know if he has received the Holy Spirit. How can I be certain? His answer, speaking in tongues. And so that's what he comes up with. Um, he preached the tongues of Acts chapter 2 as normative. And in this, he sought the third blessing. First blessing, justification. Second lesson, sanctification. Second blessing, I say. Third blessing, speaking in tongues. So now we've got not just two, but three blessings. The Methodist salvation progressed from two stages and then conversion and then full, from full cleansing to the third phase of receiving the Holy Spirit, evidence of speaking in tongues. He started a Bible school in Kansas, then he later moved it to Houston, Texas. And here's where it is. Here's where he moved it. Uh, from Topeka to, to Orchard. How many of you have been to Orchard, Texas? About 37 miles outside of Houston. Uh, there you go. A couple maps here. A couple from Orchard, Texas invited Charles Parham to do a revival in Orchard. Parham saw this as an opportunity to train his new missionary students, so he took 15 trainees down to Orchard, Texas. He and his people rented Bryan Hall in which to hold their revival meetings. Now, if you're looking down there, you see that those streets? That's right there downtown. If you go to Minute Maid Park or, or Toyota Center, it's right there. Uh, this is the building where he wants it. This is the building there. That wasn't there then. It's where Bryan Hall once was. Uh, that's where it is. That, that's what it was. Here, watch this. Let's do that again. That's just a lot of fun. I mean, there's just no way around it. <laughs> and so it has its roots here in our own town. In the Houston Chronicle, here's what was written in 1905. Parham, without study and without effort, comes to the power to speak. Come, from him comes the power. Without study and without effort comes the power to speak. I'm sorry, not a single tongue. But to speak all the languages of the world, the disciples may preach the gospel to every living creature. But he speaks the words put into his mouth and knows not what he says. August 13th, 1905, the Houston Chronicle. Houston Post was also back then uh, and writing articles about him. I just could have gone on and on with all the articles written about him. Uh, he sent missionaries abroad without language school. Uh, so go, you, go, you want to be a missionary in India? Go, go over there. The Holy Spirit will teach you how to speak the language. You want to be a missionary down in South Africa? Uh, go. Holy Spirit will teach you how to talk. Um, and that's what he believed. Agnes Osmond described as a basket case. <laughs> I love reading it. She was the first to speak in tongues. Uh, in Galena, Kansas, people began to get healed. And the movement began to evolve. 
be healed, get healed. What does that mean? What does that look like? Somebody have a cold and go away feeling better? Uh, did someone come in with a, a missing leg from the Civil War and go away with a new leg? Probably not the latter, right? In Houston, Parham converted a man named William Seymour in 1905. And this is where it really gets interesting. William Seymour. And by the way, Parham is a white man. Seymour is a black man. And the early interactions was no one was listening to what they were saying. They just couldn't believe that whites and blacks were working together. It was a beautiful thing. William Seymour is a convert of Parham. He was born the son of freed slaves in Centerville, Louisiana. He became a preacher who sought the second blessing and tongues, namely the third blessing. That's what tongues are. His church later kicked him out for his heretical teachings because he said, I believe you need to speak in tongues to have that third blessing. They kicked him out. He moved a house to a house and preached at night. One night they got baptized with the Spirit, and the crowds flooded to the overflow in this house, in and around this house. There it is. Picture that house. The church moved to San Francisco. That's a great place for them, right? At 312 Azusa Street in an old abandoned Methodist church. Anybody of you know about Azusa Street? There you go. The Azusa Street Revival. And there it is. There's Azusa Street. Revival began there under William Seymour that lasted for three full years. Seymour put a shoebox on his head to cover the glory. And he removed it to preach. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And what would you do if I walked out and I had this? Hey, Lance, why do you have the head, that on your head? Covering the glory. He preached judgment was coming to San Francisco. And then an earthquake. Actually, he preached. I, admit, I did that wrong. He preached judgment was coming to Los Angeles, which is where Azusa Street is. And then an earthquake hit San Francisco. Now, that's 380 to 400 miles away. Is that a right prophecy? Oh, I'm sorry. I meant San Francisco. Yeah, I meant to put Los Angeles because that's where they were. So earthquakes come to Los Angeles. Oh, I meant San Francisco. There it is down there, 400 miles down the road. <laughs> Lance, when did tongues move from speaking foreign languages like with missionaries to Here. gibberish? Here. Did it come with this Yeah, it came with the holiness movement, yeah. Now, there are pockets of it uh, in church history. Uh, the Manichees believed that they were doing a little bit of that. Uh, there were some strange groups, but they were fringe groups throughout the history of the church. But here's where it comes. This is where it really becomes huge. So up to this point, it was pretty much lost. Now it's now when Parham arrived from Texas into California, he was appalled at what he saw at Seymour's church. He said, I found hypnotic influences, mesmeric influences, and all kinds of spells and spasms and falling in trances. The speaking in tongues is never brought about by any of the above influence. In all our work, the laying on of hands is practiced only occasionally. So even Parham is going, wait a minute, this is going too far here. Uh, he, I think Parham was a little bit on the, the cuckoo side, but he recognizes this is really strange on this side uh, and, and disavowed it. Others, however, disagreed. Tens of thousands of holiness pastors and other seekers visited Azusa Street and received the blessing. I should put that in. In uh, quotes, they returned home or they went as missionaries to spread the word and this Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues, spread to the world. It's still there. In fact, you'll hear things like uh, Africa, the, the, the continent of Africa is, is Christian. It's, it's not. It's, it's, it's charismatic. It's Pentecostal. Most of what's called Christian today outside of the United States is charismatic. It's, it's doubtful whether it's any, any of it has anything to do with Jesus 
Um, and because Jesus is lost in all of this. Salvation from one's sins is lost in trying to speak in tongues and find this, this hypnotic feeling, this dopamine feeling. Um, Azusa ministry ended after three years. Controversies racked the church. Seymour restricted the ministry to African Americans. Um, the ministry dwindled after a few years. The building was destroyed, and today it's a parking lot on Azusa Street. Enter the Assemblies of God. Anybody with Assembly of God background? Okay. Well, in Hot Springs, a group rejected three works of grace, the three works of grace, claiming only two. You're saved, and then you receive a blessing. This gave birth to the Assemblies of God in 1914. The Church of the Nazarene and the Church of God were legalistic and holy. The, the Assemblies of God were far more user-friendly, uh, whereas they're they're telling you you can't dress like this, you can't go here, you can't go there. The assemblies of God are going, look, just lighten up, Francis. You can do whatever you want, user-friendly church type thing. All three groups believe themselves to be the haves and the others are the have-nots. Now, I used to have a boss, Cheryl and I both, we worked in Dallas at International Christian Media. If you're familiar, if you remember back in the 80s and 90s, uh, uh, Marlon Maddox, a point-of-view radio talk show. How many of you remember that show? Okay, It was on KSBJ from 1 to 3. Um, I worked for Marlon Maddox. I was actually a ghostwriter for him and worked in the warehouse over there. Cheryl did the same thing on the computers. And our bosses were, uh, they were all assemblies of God. Good people, nice folk. I love them, have nothing but respect for them. And my boss was, uh, I, would, I was in seminary at the time, Dallas Seminary, and I would ask him, you know, tell me, what do you have that I don't? Do you think I'm saved? He goes, oh, yeah. He said, I think, I think you're saved, Lance. He said, but you don't have the gifting that we have. How do I get that? Same as Warren, Warren Kelly. Warren's a good man, good friend. Um, and he was not nice and never looking down upon me for that. He just said, well, you need to, to ask the Holy Spirit to give you that gift. Uh, and I said, well, of course I've asked. I mean, God, fill me, you know, give me what you have to give. He said, yeah, but you, you must have no faith because you don't have the gifting of it. So how do you know I don't have the gifting? He said, because you haven't spoken in tongues. You haven't, and he stopped himself, and he said, Ben, and hold on now, Lance, you haven't been slain in the Spirit. He was very nice about it. I said, no, I have not. I have not been slain in the Spirit. But he said, and you don't want it because you scoff at it. Yes, I do. I scoff at it then. Now, and I said, well, how does that make me different than you? He said, well, I would just say it is that we're the varsity and you're the JV. And that, that was an honest assessment, honest answer. Okay, I can live with that. I said, can I still work here? He said, sure. You're just a have not. You'll always work for me. <laughs> and so that's what it becomes. You've got this hierarchy of the great ones in the church and then the rest of us in that in their theology. Most all groups lack doctrine and training. Um, They're not Bible trained. Uh, There are no assemblies of God's seminaries uh, and the ones that are, you know, and they wouldn't need a seminary. Why would they need a seminary? The Holy Spirit teaches them everything they need to know, right? They look down on people like me who would go to a seminary, uh, which is a graduate level school of theology and learning languages and learning history and learning learning the Bible, writing papers and, and working through biblical issues. It's a big thick book. There's a lot to learn. And they would look down on that and say, you should just, the Spirit should teach you. Well, the Spirit is teaching me through higher education. Uh, Assemblies of God are not as exclusive as Pentecostals. Um, as I said, they're a little bit more user-friendly church. Pentecostalism shuns wealth and prosperity. The Assemblies of God promote blessing, happiness, and power. There are few taboos with charismatics. Uh, they believe in health and money. Uh, women can preach in the Assemblies of God. Again, when you're a user-friendly church, you don't want to make too big a deal about what the Bible says and doesn't say. You need no credentials to preach. Uh, you get it. 
The old nature is cast out. It, meaning you either know it or you don't. You either know God and everything comes to you or you don't. And if you have it, your old nature is out. If your old nature is out, welcome to the sinless world. No longer will you sin volitionally or intentionally. Your moral mistakes, you'll, you'll make moral mistakes, but you won't sin. Think about that. What is a moral mistake? You commit adultery. Sorry, that's just a moral mistake. That's not a sin. But that's what it is. And you'll, you'll encounter people like this if you haven't already. People that say, I haven't sinned in the last 25 years and I don't plan on sinning. I have reached sanctification. That's someone from an Assemblies of God or a holiness background. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Enter Amy Simple McPherson. Beautiful woman. How many of you have heard of Amy? She's quite the story. She's Bethmore before Bethmore was conceived. Uh, it shows that Bethmore, what Bethmore is doing, is not the first time it's been done. She was a Methodist. She was born Amy Elizabeth Kennedy in 1890. She became a Canadian revivalist. She converted to Christ by, through a man named Robert Simple, and then she married him. That's him at the top, Robert Simple. The Simples served as missionaries in China until he died, and then she returned to the United States, and she married Harold McPherson. That's him at the bottom. She was a beautiful lady. All the pictures I see of a very, very beautiful woman before her time, and she made herself beautiful, which was a bit out of sync with the Methodist Church. She started the Pentecostal church called the Foursquare Gospel Church in 1927. So when you see Foursquare Gospel uh, churches, that's the full gospel. The rest of us just have the half gospel, apparently. But she started that church. She founded this mega church in Los Angeles called the Angelus Temple, and there's a picture of it. Uh, she became a national celebrity in the 1920s. She was a brilliant woman, thought well. She had a beautiful face, and she, was, uh, she knew how to work the crowds. Though she did not stress healing, many came to her, so she healed them. I like that. So she healed them. Well, I'm not big on healing, but if you come to me, I'll heal you. It just seems like it's no big deal to just heal somebody. With her mega church and income from radio ministry, she became big, a bigger industry than Methodism itself. And this is a picture of a typical church gathering, old picture. Uh, she was a showwoman, as you can see there. Uh, she drew crowds with spectacular and unexpected stage antics. She was doing this long before the crazies of our day were into it. Charlie Chaplin, atheist and hater of everything scripture, even respected her. Now, if you're being respected by an atheist and someone who hates Scripture, uh, something's amiss. She adopted a materialistic lifestyle with makeup and stylish clothes. Pentecostals were outraged. She became a pioneer of health, or the pioneer. I should have put the pioneer, but I, I went back and forth on the, the, uh, uh, the A or the V, the definite article or the indefinite article, but I would just I settled with a pioneer of health and wealth gospel because it wasn't all her. Uh, she had been having an affair. She had admitted to an abortion because after her divorce from her third husband, she vanished and later went uh, came up with an abduction story. People thought she was dead. She reappears. So I was abducted. And then uh, in the midst of that, what happened, what really happened, well, she was having an affair and uh, she died alone in the hotel room. That's a, her death uh, her coffin there at the top, if you can make it out. Uh, that one on the far left, anybody recognize the guy on the far left? Yeah, that's one of her affairs. One of them was Milton Burrow. Uncle Milty. She founded the Salvation Navy. 
The four-square gospel being the lighthouse for the ship itself. Uh, this is her tomb. Uh, the bottom one, you can see her name. At the top, uh, she is surrounded by two angels there at the top. <laughs> I don't know that. Uh, wouldn't be surprised, I, but I haven't heard that. She gets many visitors each year. Who do you think her number one visitor is? Penny <laughs> Hens, a regular visitor. How about that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Milton doesn't doesn't visit her anymore, but. Uh, <laughs> And there's just so many pictures, I just put a bunch together. Uh, there she is in the middle of the top where she's uh, lying on her deathbed. Uh, beautiful lady. She was on the radio down the bottom right corner. Um, people loved her. She was, uh, she was quite the show back when there weren't many shows to see. Enter Oral Roberts, 1918-2009, a poor Pentecostal holiness preacher. He began holding tent-based healing crusades in the Midwest. If Amy can do it, I can do it. Through a radio ministry and later TV ministry, became larger than his denomination. He himself became larger than his denomination. He began emphasizing education and hospital healing. Um, created his own hospital. Uh, still there. I've got a picture of it coming up. He emphasized interdenominational spread of the charismatic gifts. Uh, he collaborated with Demos Shakarian, an Armenian-American who founded the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship. Some of these names, as we're, we're getting more to our modern day, these are names that we're going to recognize a little bit more. Uh, Roberts left the Pentecostal holiness denomination and became a Methodist. Um, here's his, uh, created the Royal Roberts University and Research Hospital, which is interesting. Yeah, you, you wonder, why would they have doctors when they just go in and heal them? <laughs> it wasn't, it, no one's going to take them there. You're right. It was more of a, Tell me what you know. He was a huckster. Yeah. Well, I know he was a huckster. What was his hospital used for from what you know? Beautiful place there. Well, they said God was going to kill him. If he'd got he didn't give him eight million dollars. If he didn't Yeah. That was the that was the eight million dollars back in the eighties, wasn't it, when he said that to build this place? Old Oral Roberts, yep. Came to emphasize the health and wealth gospel that, that continues to this day, uniquely American. In 1959, Dennis Bennett took the holiness movement into the Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California. As it spread like wildfire, you know Pat Robertson at the top, 1960s holiness movement gets into the Catholic Church at Duquesne University and even Notre Dame. Conferences are being held among Catholic charismatics. All of this translates well on TV because it excites and entertains the masses, and you get people like these two guys, Pat Robertson and David Wilkerson, who were the sword and the switchblade. Um, my bosses that I was telling you about earlier at the place where I worked uh, told me that they believe that David Wilkerson is a modern-day prophet. And I said, I just went through and found a handful of his prophecies that were false and said, well, he can't be a prophet if these are false. And he said, well, you know, we believe he is. Okay, I don't believe he is, uh, or was. He's dead now. Um, but these are the guys you see. It, it translates well to TV and to radio. And then you got the big ones here. The third wave from holiness to blessing to power success to Kenneth Hagin. That's Hagin on the right top. No sickness, no poverty in their theology. You can't do that. If you're sick or you have no money, you, have lack, you lack faith. 
You need to get faith. If you can't get faith, you need to send them your money. Copeland sang in Oral Roberts' Crusades, huge success on TV. Tilton heals people with his green jacket. Tells a story one time of spreading everybody's prayer request over the top of a table and laying on top of them, and he got ink poisoning from all the ink of the, the people writing that, that got all over him. Strange thing that God would give him that while praying. Yeah, yeah, through osmosis, yeah. For you young folks, you may not know who Bob Tilton was, but that's him down there at the bottom. You should look. If you go online, you see Bob Tilton today. You would not recognize him. Um, I'm not even sure if he's alive, but uh, his picture's now, or, or at least up to his death. Do you know if he's alive? I don't know. He's out of the news, but it doesn't look anything like he once did. Uh, two sermons, health and success. God wants you healthy. He wants you to be successful, and we are the linchpins of how you get there. Send us your money, and you'll become great. Actions determine reality. Experience over Scripture. That's what the whole thing is about. Forget Scripture. It's how you feel. And you'll find, if you've not already discovered this, when you argue with someone about an experience they had, you're saying, well, the Bible says, but they had an experience. You're not going to win. I know how I felt. I know what it did to me. Felt this way. I know it must be true. The errors of the movement are plentiful. Emotion does not heal or remove sin. Um, you might make you feel better. You might get some psychosomatic. Psychosomatic, if you don't know what psychosomatic is, somatic means the, the flesh. It means skin. Psycho is what you think. Um, so how you think, and I don't mean crazy psycho, but uh, when you think something, you can begin to feel it. Um, if you have an allergic reaction. I mean, I had, uh, Norm Geiser tells a story about going to, a, he's allergic to flowers. And uh, he goes to a church, and he begins. He goes in, right, stands at the pulpit, and he's before he goes to speak. He's just getting some things ready, and he sees some flowers over that, that are decorating the church. And he just said immediately, "I just start flowing and everything." And I, he said, I, got, "I told the guy, I said you're going to have to remove those flowers." He goes, "Norm, they're plastic." <laughs> and so, because of the sight of it, the psychosom that's psychosomatic. He thought they were real, so it made him sick. My dad tells a story. I hate to give him away, but he's passed away now. He's with Jesus. But uh, his uh, buddies in the Coast Guard gave him what he thought was, I guess, gin and tonic. And it was, uh, uh, for you drinkers, I don't know if that's what it was or not, but he thought he was drinking that, when in reality they were feeding him Sprite and water. He got drunk and said he was hung over the next day. He said, I, it wouldn't happen to me. I never would have known. He said, but I thought that's what I was drinking. He said, but it was not that. Or some kid on the playground is going to get bullied by a bully. Thinks he's going to get beat up. He breaks out in hives. No one's touched him. Nothing's happened. Psychosomatic. It's, it's the way it affects you. Most of these things are psychosomatic. I would say all of them are. Um, but even those don't remove sin. They might make you feel better. You might go away thinking that guy or that lady has got power. But that's not, that doesn't mean your sins are forgiven. You haven't received Jesus because the movement is fraught with greed, most of its inheritance, of its adherents fail morally, as you know. There's the Jimmy Swaggart, there's the Jim Baker, and all the ones of the, the time, and all of them, I mean, at some level. The third wave preachers uh, were preaching about the Mosaic Covenant, which the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 28, if you do the right things, God will bless you. Do the wrong things, God will curse you. Yet these promises were made to the nation of Israel. They weren't for individual Christians per se. That's what they teach. That's their theology. Uh, the New Testament obedient are persecuted. Uh, they're poor. They die. So their gospel does not work in poor countries. That's what Susan was asking. Can they go to other countries? How, how would this work in, in, in poverty-stricken Africa? 
Folks, you must not have any faith. You live in abject poverty. It doesn't work there, so it doesn't work at all. Some problems and concerns, there are many. There seems to be no cap on this movement. It continues to evolve, even in the present day. The simple errors of the justification-sanctification problem have snowballed into blasphemy in some churches. It moves away from the teachings of Scripture to man can become a god, which is what Hagen and Copeland teach. If God Almighty gave birth to people, what do they say? Well, then what happens? If I give birth to children, and they're humans, and God gave birth to humans, what must they be? Little gods. Hence, we're all little gods. I mean, that's ridiculous. We're not little gods. The Bible never says that. God can make animals too, and he made animals. Did he not make animals? They're not gods. They're animals. But that's what they think, and people go, oh, wow, that's amazing. You get Benny Hinn saying things like silly stuff. I mean, you can look this up, probably find it on YouTube, where he's sitting there at the table with Jan and Jan Crouch and, and I think Kenneth Hagin, and he's going, look, and he goes off into this thing because he's Palestinian. He thinks he knows Hebrew, and he doesn't, uh, but he can tell people he knows Hebrew. Uh, and he said, look, he said, I know that Adam, Adam was the first man on the earth, right? Right? Adam was the first man on the moon. Adam could fly. And because he could fly, he was the first man on the moon. And Jan Crouch goes, oh, Benny, no. And he said, no, no, I'm serious. He made, God made him. He can fly. And if he could fly, he was the first man on the moon. That's the silliness of which this, and that's pretty tame if you sit and listen to that. You can't go to sleep watching uh, PTL. You can't go to sleep because it's just too bizarre. Good, good one. G. Campbell Morgan, the great pastor of the Westminster Chapel in uh, London, called the holiness movement the last vomit from hell. <laughs> Tell us what you really think, right? The movement was conceived in error. The error went in and out like a bullet. It goes in with a little hole, out with a bang. Devastating idea of the 20th century like liberalism. Health and wealth is not promised to believers. Trials and tribulations are. Sanctification comes at the moment of our salvation. It comes through study and discipline. Miracles and tongues do not continue. Although God can do them, they are not normative. Tongues are not a prayer language. Why pray not knowing what you're saying? The results of the movement are a divided body of Christ, those who have it and those who don't. The music, it's often hollow, hype, borders on Gnosticism. Where the singer moves into a new plane of feeling and thought. And that's, that's the biggest thing at these churches. Huge, big, bombastic music for long periods of time. Emotionalism replaces scriptural truth. Charismatics are welcome at Harvest Bible Church. Just want to put this. Their teachings and behavior are not. I remember Chuck Swindoll telling us a story one time uh, in chapel. And he was saying, guys, there was a time I was speaking at a church. He said, and there was a man in the front row. And he said, and he started off with an Amen. Every other word I would say, amen. Oh, yeah. He said, I tuned him out. He said, but the amen, yes, brother, became hallelujah, standing up, jumping around, and howling all around the front row. And he said, and no one was doing anything about it. He said, and I, he's found, he said I'm not going to go on until this man is removed. Uh, people do that. That's just the way it goes. It's like the person needs attention. Um, uh, people up on the, you'll see you go to a, a church where there's, there's a few musicians or there's a bunch of musicians, and you've got a lead singer and maybe a little trio of people singing over here and a guitarist here. And there's always going to be someone that's going to want the attention that isn't getting it on that stage. Hands go crazy. I had a friend of mine at Texas A&M. He said, yeah, the church I go to, the woman's always trying to fly away. <laughs> hands up here, flying around. If, if you are so moved to raise your hands, do so. If you become a distraction to someone behind you, move to the back. 
Uh, it is not about you. It's not about us. We're either going to worship or we're going to get a feeling, right? We're either going to worship and give glory to God or we're, going, we're either going to, to receive or we're gonna, going to, to give. Give worship or receive something. Really a good church is you get both, right? The doctrine of illumination. The Bible is no longer the final authority. It's just a genie lamp. Uh, the focus on the Christian life. Not to give, but to get, as I said. This is why it's so popular, because people, what can I get out of the church? And by the way, every time you go and you feel good, what are you going to want the next week? Somebody asked me, you know, I had Scott Wall do a sermon a couple weeks ago because we were out of town, and he had the prop, and he had the shovel up there. And somebody said, why don't you have a prop? Because if I did one prop, I'd have to, I'd have to best it the next week. And I'm just not that creative. <laughs> I'm not creative at all. Not even that, that creative. I'm not creative at all. You have to do something. You have to outdo it every time. That's no disrespect to Scott. He's a guest speaker, and we remember him by that. It's quick. It's painless. It's wonderful. It feels good, only in America. That's what, and think about everything we've learned about the history of the church, and here's where it's, this is what it's come to. Biblical hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation, changed and experience now determines truth, not studying words and contexts. I had to add this. It's a mess to clean up. Many of us preachers have to go behind this garbage and clean up the mess left behind. These people come to the church. They have all these strange ideas. I've got to tell them, look, we don't do that. We're not going to do that. Oh, you're stifling the spirit. No, we're not. I'm sorry you feel that. It's just a big mess. Belief that bad things are not ordained by God, that they must come from Satan? No. I mean, who, who's, who's in charge of all things? God. What we call bad, God giving us a gift. I'm giving you the gift of sickness. I'm giving you the gift of, of loss. Lean on me. This is not all of Satan. They go around rebuking Satan for every bad thing that happens. Great things come out of adversity, which makes for strong believers. You can't raise your children this way. You can't raise your children the way charismatics tell you to. They would become worthless. Always wanting, always begging, always needing, not working. When we look at the Bible, we see that Christ's work of salvation is finished. We don't need to add to it. All three works of grace are at conversion. Justification, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, all there at one time. Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. That is, it is given to us. It is transferred from Him. His righteousness is transferred to us through faith. We open the door to God's righteousness by faith in Jesus, and He gives it to us. What He did, we have. We seek study, discipline, prayer, holiness, not to get saved, but because we're saved. And those who are doing that prove that they are saved. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers. They show that how, God's, how God has taken Israel's Messiah and given him to the tongues, that is the nations. Tongues are dialects. They are real languages, miracles validating the apostles' message, and the apostles are dead. Miracles are not normative. It's what makes them miracles. If they're normative, they're no longer miracles. And finally, Thomas Edgar says this, there is no biblical evidence that there will be a reoccurrence in the church of the sign gifts or that believers will work miracles near the end of the church age. However, there is ample evidence that near the end of the age, there will be false prophets who perform miracles, prophesy, and cast out demons in Jesus' name. Beware. Be careful. In the history of the church, this is where it has come. It's another thing to dodge. We're looking at it in our day and age. Next week, I'll show you more on how, how liberalism has taken away, um, at least what they think, has taken away the truth of the Bible. Let's pray.
Lord, again, we thank you. Thank you for truth. Your Bible, your word is enduring. It's never changed. It's never changed because you never change. I pray that we would be um, excited to read it, that we endeavor to study it, that we would long to, to hear it preached and perhaps become a preacher of it ourselves. May the good news flow from our lips. May the sanctification, the holiness that you have granted us in our justification may be seen by all. May people see Jesus in us. And we pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Thank you.